Today, we speak with Kathy Collinsworth, Business New Hampshire Magazine's inaugural nonprofit leader of the year, about rescuing the Mananak Humane Society from the brink of closure and turning it into a thriving organization serving not just our furry friends, but also the people in their community. I'm Matt Mowry, Executive Editor of Business NH Magazine. And I'm Ethan Carroll, Chief Growth Officer of Granite Media Group, founder of Cardinal Consulting, and welcome to BizCast NH. Apropos, as we always do, we have, uh, we're going to be talking animals today a lot, I'm sure, and animal welfare and all the good things that our guest and her organization are doing. Um, so maybe we set the stage with um, our love for animals. Do you guys, well, you guys, you have a dog, a relatively new addition to we the family. We do. So well, I grew up with mm. dogs mm-hmm. and, and one cat. We, we did veer off to a cat one point. I'm sorry and to hear it, that. Well, I mean, we loved him, <laughs> but he was interesting. Yeah. You know, it, you know, we were warned, like, he gives love bites. Well, you know, he goes for the jugular. <laughs> love bites. You know, we got him, and we, we were walking around for the first couple of weeks with squirt guns because Aww. you want to go around court. He's like, yep. like, oh, my gosh. Um, but he lived to a ripe old age. Um, but <laughs> so I, I grew up with animals, and, um, you know, when we adopted the boys, mm. um, you know, eventually the talk turned to, you know, they wanted a dog and, you know, I was working in Manchester, you know, our hours just weren't driving and it was just busy and, um, you know, we lived along a busy road. So we, we had like the thousand one excuses not, yeah, to. not to have an animal. So yeah. when we moved <laughs> during the pandemic, um, the house we got in this quiet cul-de-sac, it came with a fenced in yard. I was working from home. All of a sudden, all the excuses went away. And, you know, we had a guinea pig. Mm-hmm. So, but, you know, they were like, we want the dog. So we, we acquiesced in uh, August. We, um, being the adoptive family we are, we adopted from um, one of the local animal shelters. And um, we got Lars. So he's, Lars. he was a seven-year-old Aww. husky who was with his owner his whole life, except that she unfortunately um, developed um, cancer um, mm. and uh, the prognosis wasn't good. So she was trying to find a home for him. So Aww. we ended up being that home. Lars. And Lars, great dog. Um, Is we there a butt coming? Well, you know. <laughs> You do need to do your research. Uh-huh. Yeah. And, you know, he's a husky, which apparently is, um, you know, a Native American word for, I'm sorry, are you talking to me? Um, you know, <laughs> oh it's like God. having another teenager in the house. So there was a, there was some training periods and I had to <sighs> alpha, you know, and, and now he's my shadow and he's oh. a great dog. And the kids love him. We just, you know, he brings so much to the, to the house, but, you know. There are times, you know, that, you know, he, he, he's just like, no, I'm going to go do this now. <laughs> this is what I'm doing. I'm going to sit here. <laughs> now, you have a dog. Well, we? we do. We have a dog and we adopted a cat somewhat recently. Her name is Rosie. And she Aww. does that weird, like, jump up at you from around the corner kind of thing. <laughs> um, I grew up with cats. And at somewhere along the line, I did not. I, I, I lost my cat person-ness, I guess. I'm, and I'm all about dogs. And so when, when my wife was like, oh, I want to, you know, get a cat. And then, of course, the kids wanted the cat, too. Um, I'm like, oh, fine, okay, I've got a cat, you know. Um, she's cute. 
I feed her sometimes. She gets fed every day, but I feed her sometimes. Uh, she's cute sometimes. I just love the way for the I feed her sometimes. <laughs> Once in a while, I, I put forth some effort for the poor thing, but she's sweet. She's she's part of the family. Well, and it's funny because the the it took Moose, our golden retriever, um, who's very, very energetic. It took him a very short amount of time to get used to her. Like, they had a little face-off and, you know, a little showdown. And then they were fine. And just the other day, she's like sitting on his face and Aww. he's rolling around and he like, you know, snuggles up to her. It is too much to even handle. It's wonderful. Oh, that's um, so cute. And the kids love the cat. Well, they, they like the dog too. They, you know, it takes, he's much bigger and much more energetic. So it takes some getting used to, but yeah, we're, we're good. We're good now. But yeah, I grew up with cats. We had this cat that like one day just showed up. So we, and her name was Meep because she couldn't meow. She just made this sort of meep sound. Aww. And when she died, we, my mom had like a, a piece of bluestone and made like a gravestone for her and buried her and stuff in the yard and the garden. And, um, and we put, instead of like, you know, born, because we didn't know when she was born, we said, we put came to us on the gravestone. You know, it was, it was cute. Yeah, she was, well, and that, those like, we always had cats grow, I did growing up that were like dogs. So they were like the lap cat and like the, you know, they were cuddly and sweet and all. So that's what probably why I, you know, shifted over to dogs pretty easily after, <laughs> after that. Cause it was like having a dog. So anyway, that's our animal therapy for today. Yes. They are therapy too. <laughs> that's, there's, yeah, there's nothing that's like true. at the end, if I'm stressed out, he will just come over and I can pet him yeah. and the world just gets a little better. Mm -hmm. It's true. It's true. Yeah. Until he drags me down the street. But right. then, you know. Right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh, my word. Here we go. Here we go. Hey, I think we're going to hear about uh, maybe some some uh, some really neat pet stories and, and animal stories from our guests this week. And our guest this week is Kathy Collinsworth, Executive Director of Monadnock Humane Society. Prior to joining the Humane Society, Kathy was president of the Monadnock United Way and Executive Director of Stonewall Farm in Keene. Kathy has dedicated most of her career to non Nonprofits, both in her career as well as in volunteering. Kathy believes that the vital work of the nonprofit sector and the, and the economic impact that it has dramatically improves the quality of life in our region and our state. She's the past president of Keene Elm City Rotary Club, president of New Hampshire Federation of Humane Societies, a member of Ladies Charitable Society, 100 plus women who care, Cheshire County, and trustee of Savings Bank of Walpole. Kathy, welcome. And Congratulations. Good morning, Matt and Nathan. <laughs> Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, I am super honored. I can't say enough about this first inaugural position, right? It's um, for me, I'm more excited for future nonprofit leaders and how this is going to pave the road for the importance of this role across the state of New Hampshire. So thank you for having me. I love that. And you're humble too. So it's our pleasure to have you. You've obviously uh, earned the title, as it were. You've done a lot of work. We're going to dig into that. Um, but so before, though, we learn more about the Humane Society as well, I would love to know where your passion for community and nonprofit work come from. Yeah, thank you. So I'm a native of the Monadnock region, so ah. I'm, I have deep roots. Um, so that passion comes from really caring about the fabric of our community and our region and the quality of life. And in addition to that, um, I think I'm, overall I'm a problem solver. That's just by nature. I, I love to mm. solve problems. And, and the reality of the nonprofit sector, right, 
a is lot of problems. There's a lot of problems going on in sure. social services and so forth. So um, it just draws me, and it, it's thus the sort of career path that mm-hmm. you've seen. I've stayed with nonprofits for between six and seven years before mm-hmm. I want to go on to the next problem. Yeah. 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 So you're you're investing, you're you're making serious sustainable change, obviously, and and I think we get to talk a bit more about that too. Um, you came to so I, I want to uh, have you dig into the Monadnock Humane Society and what Monadnock Humane Society and other humane societies are and what their purpose is and what they're doing um, but also maybe segue too into the your story of joining the organization because it, it was not in a good place um, and you've done a ton of work in a number of different facets and ways to get it to where it is today but first what is the Monadnock Humane Society? Yeah, so being the president of New Hampshire Federation of Humane Societies across the state, mm-hmm. it's a member-based organization ourselves. Um, primarily, that group is doing a lot of work at the legislative level mm-hmm. to change bills related to animal welfare. Nice. Um, and so that's really important work. But overall, across the state, you know, humane societies are a space where everybody always thinks about adoption of cute puppies and kittens and absolutely (laughs) that happens but we are the place in order for that to happen right matt your husky ended up um in a sad situation and now has a beautiful home and so the reality of people needing to surrender animals for a variety of reasons um is important for us to be there a stray you know say your husky runs off huskies are notable for that yes Um, and so it, it, it runs off and you know, somebody brings them to us and we care for that husky um, until it can be reunited with your family. So mm. that's, you know, one of the, your family members, right? So that's really important. Um, we also have, you know, low-cost low bay-neuter clinics. You know, the mm. northeast animal populations have declined significantly. When I go to a conference in the south or in, a, you know, California, they don't understand the concept of us transporting animals in to our to the Northeast because mm-hmm. we don't have enough animal populations locally. So we're saving a lot of animals from the South, high population, high euthanasia areas mm. where we can now give them a second chance in life. So a lot of transports. And then most recently, um, and some are doing this, some are not in the state of New Hampshire, mm-hmm. but we just started recently, we brought on a humane agent full time to focus yeah, on- Yeah, Yeah, to focus on animal cruelty. So- okay. A lot of the municipalities are responsible for animal care, you know, making sure that their community is safe around animals. Mm-hmm. And um, local law enforcement, we all know, are super short-staffed, and they are often held responsible for managing animal populations. Sure. Yeah. So we're doing a lot of the... Uh, our humane agent is certified uh, in that arena, hmm. knows all the laws, knows how to build a case for law enforcement and hand it over to law enforcement who has the authority to press charges. And we have multiple cases going on right now. And that's all related to animal cruelty. Right? Yeah. 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 Oh, yeah. boy. Yeah. Um, how pervasive is animal cruelty? I mean, you know, we see it. We, we maybe occasionally hear about it on the news. We maybe see a, you know, a, a commercial, you know, a, to support organizations that help it. But how pervasive is that and uh, that, that you see kind of every day, or do you? Yeah, we do. Um, our humane agent has been in her role for a year and a half, and she we has she has removed 342 animals oh from different God. homes across the state just in a year and a half. Wow. 
Um, so, it, you know, we, one case, I'll just give you an example. We went to one home that had 73 cats in one apartment. Whoa. So that number is often related to um, mental health, mm-hmm. hoarding, mm-hmm. Um, and typically with dogs, it's like a breeding situation sure. that's not being monitored. So, you know, the conditions of the home and the and the animals sometimes are suffering, and that's when we come in and try to help. We often try to help them, mm-hmm. you know, people who are trying to get control over their animal population. So it's not just, you know, a hammer and arrestment, yeah. you know, it's it's truly trying to get in and help them first. And if they are in over their heads, then we take the animals in. Mm. Got mm-hmm. it. Got and before it. we delve too much more into the Humane Society and where it was and what's grown into over your, your tenure, I think I'd like to step back and talk a little bit about your path there. Uh, because I think, you know, it's important to understanding the current story of the Humane Society, where you have really brought in not only a perspective on how do we serve the animals in our region, but the humans that are supporting them and the supports they may need. Um, So can you talk a bit about what brought you to the nonprofit realm and what were the organizations that you were attracted to and how you led them? Yeah, and it does go back to my desire for um, problem solving. And, you know, my having been, you know, prior to what's in my bio, I was at Cheshire Medical Center doing community health education programs and home health care, hospice and community services, you know, another nonprofit. So a lot of human services, Mm -hmm. I just have a connection with people and obviously animals. Um, (laughs) I grew up with animals, so I have a passion for that. The work that I did in El Salvador with our Rotary Club, we would go out into villages and do um, help impoverished villages build homes. Um, And oftentimes I was veered off helping the animals that are suffering in the area. (laughs) Where's Um, Kat? Yeah, a whole other example of Dr. Doolittle, Uh because I wasn't doing much help with building the houses. Um, So I think it's just truly the connection to people and making a difference. Um, I love getting in, diving into assessing the needs, like which are always changing, right? So truly working with a team to assess the needs and then how do we f- how do we solve the problem? And that's just been, like I said, the path of, you know, Stonewall Farm and then United Way and and now the Humane Society. And you're asking like how do you go how did you get to the Humane Society? Um, Quite honestly, I was asked to serve on a search committee for the executive director for the Humane Society <laughs> when I was the president of the United Way. <laughs> and so the more I looked at the position it was in mm-hmm. um, and a, another big problem, it, it excited me. Um, and so I, people who know me, what didn't surprise them that I went from United Way to a Humane Society based on my core love mm-hmm. for animals, mm-hmm. but... Um, the, most of the population didn't understand my move, <laughs> especially because they knew the Humane Society was really struggling. Yeah. yeah. I was going to say, this is an organization that's been around for more than 100 years. Um, so, I mean, very well established. But um, nonprofits can be a tough world to be in, in constant fundraising and, you know, getting to that point of sustainability. And even an organization that's been around for 100 years isn't a guarantee. Um, so... There's not a lot of leaders, though, that say, oh, this is a, an organization that's in some real straits. Let me step up for that. What made you look at the, this challenge and go, 
I think this is, I, I, I can do it and I want to do it. What was it about that, that, that made you do that calculus? Yeah, it was a big risk for me because I loved my job at Monadnock United Way and had a great team um, working alongside. I think um, the big part of it, the biggest part of it probably was the draw for the animals. Mm. I couldn't imagine. I, I mean, I had been, I remember being eight years old and the Monadnock Humane Society, this is when they did some farm animals, had a pony and my mom finally said yes. And we were driving there. And I was going to adopt a pony. Oh my but by God. the time I got there, it got adopted. <gasps> oh, but, no. but this, I have years and years of myself going. I took my son, mm-hmm. you know, just to socialize with the animals. Mm. All of my animals have come from an ad Humane Society since I was little. Nice. So I just really had, um, again, my roots are deep in the Monadnock region. And for that, particular organization. As a little girl, I had a dog along me everywhere I went. Um, So I just, I think it really was that, Matt, um, along with my desire to always try to solve problems with the team. Like I went into this organization and I was like drinking from a fire hose and (laughs) little did I know how much they were already doing Mm -hmm. around social services. And Mm -hmm. and then that excited me given my past and what I could bring in, especially from United Way everything that I knew about all the organizations that we served from United Way and how we could collaborate in a deeper way to really help people and animals across the region. Nice. So going into that, though, did you, were you, how aware were you of the situation that the organization was in? Um, you know, you, you, you only find out so much in an interview. Obviously, you probably knew of the organization, so that's something. But were you... Uh, a bit surprised when you stepped into the role? I knew because I was I was initially going to be on the search committee. Mm, and so right. part, when I was asked to be on the search committee, I started asking multiple questions so I could fully understand who the candidate needed to be yeah. and what to, how to prepare um, for those interview questions. And as I was asking the questions, the, the person on the board who asked me to be on the search committee said, we need to clone you. Like, you need this. You need to be in this. <laughs> because I was asking all the questions yeah. that needed to be asked right. as far as how to turn things around and what what do we need to be talking about and planning for. And so when she said that, I'm like, oh, no, no, no. And I went home, and I was talking to my husband about it, and it just started to stir. It just kept stirring. And then I threw my hat in the ring. Nice. And so what was one of the first – what were the first steps that you took – to right the ship, as it were. And how did you get buy-in from the staff? Because change, even good change, is so hard and can be scary. Um, So how did you go about getting all the different constituencies on board? And then what were some of the things that you and the staff had to do in order to get the organization back on track? Yeah, that was a big one. So I sort of have a transformational leadership style. Mm -hmm. It's a lot about um, listening and transparency and building trust. And that's everything from staff to board to donors. Um, And I knew, so it wasn't just a financial crisis there. There was a lot of the staff did not trust leadership at all. I mean, there was a big... Um, situation that happened with the previous ED between the board, the staff loved the board, the board had to let the the ED go. And so there was a lot of crisis going on culturally and trust 
wise. Mm. And so my f- number one was I can't do anything without the right team. So getting in and really meeting one-on-one with the team and asking questions and trying to learn from them. I mean, the, the, the tenure of the leadership team there, given everything it's been through, is phenomenal. So talk about passion and dedication. They're doing it for the love of the animals and what they're doing. Um, any of them could have moved on and been a lot less stressed. So really meeting with them and building trust with them. And it took, uh, my first two years took just that, like working with the team and building the board. Um, that was mm-hmm. a, because of my connections in the nonprofit sector, I had s- some pretty good connections with past board members and the, the skills that they bring to the table as well. And it's all about that staff board can't do any of it without the right team. Um, so that was a big, big part of it. And then, then of course, um, the financial challenges. We are, so I have, from my past nonprofit experience, I have a lot of relationship with donors. Mm-hmm. And um, thankfully, they uh, trust me and the work that I have done in the past. And so it's not always specifically about the mission of the organization. It's about, you know, the trust that they have in me as far as the work that I'm doing with the team to create change. And so fundraising, it's been the easiest fundraising job I've had. (laughs) It's animals, right? Right. Like, who's going to say no to that? Come on. And I'm the only gig in town. Like, the closest organization, you got all these other organizations dealing with childhood hunger Mm -hmm. or, you know, homelessness or, you know, there's a lot of competition out there, the arts. There's a lot of competition out right. there, but I have animals. Yep. Um, so, and then people who are very generous people who leave money in their will. So bequests wow. are very big in the animal welfare industry. Nice. What do they say? The people that there's a lot of people out there that like animals better than people. Oh uh, yeah, 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 yeah. They do say that a lot. <laughs> yep. Yep. So it shows when we when we see uh, the donations coming in, we're very lucky. Neat. Um, talk for just a minute about other sources of revenue. How are you otherwise funded um, beyond your generous donors? Yeah. So when it's really a big organization, nobody fully understands it. So we have a twenty thousand square foot facility on ninety acres, and it's we have thirty employees. Wow. Yeah. And so. Shelter, another thing that people don't always wrap their heads around is we're sort of like a hospital for animals, right? We Mm -hmm. have to be 365, 12 hours a day. Like the only time staff isn't there is, you know, when the animals should be sleeping. Um, But otherwise, they they need ongoing regular care, medical care. So we have a full-time veterinarian. Wow. So all of that. The clinics that we're doing um, do bring in some money. Mm -hmm. We started recently low-cost wellness clinics because we recognize that people – 83% 83% of the people we were seeing in our spay-neuter clinics didn't have regular vet care because they couldn't afford it. So we started offering low-cost wellness clinics, vaccinations, that kind of thing. Um, we also have a training center. So people can pay to bring their animals in for all these different dog training classes. We have a dog daycare. We have a, we have a boarding facility, and we have a grooming practice. Oh, wow. So it's not just – so it's really – 
multi-care and people in those profit centers do help offset the costs for you know over and above the fundraising neat so in well in terms of the organization itself i I appreciate that you mentioned sort of the size of it right that big facility and the acreage and all that because yes like you said like we we often think like dogs and cats but it's not maybe it's pigs maybe it's a horse maybe it's who knows maybe it's some cows so you've got to have the space and it's not just like an indoor kennel it's something for everyone as it were if you're an animal so nathan we we actually don't do farm animals oh you don't okay at some point prior to my time they stopped doing it new hampshire sbca yeah over in stratum is primarily the farm animal location but this land and this building i mean the building itself and farm animals kind of being like livestock and things like that so but you would take in a horse or something if they or no we don't we don't have the facility like the barns and Uh, so forth to do that okay um, but we we do a lot of even exotics. We have sugar gliders and hedgehogs and oh, oh wow, lots of different <laughs> birds and yeah. So a random chicken will show up at our door if somebody found it on the side. <laughs> it's like no chickens actually do sort of graze on the sides of roads sometimes. You know, yeah, like right. And they probably know where their home is, yeah. but maybe they just got picked up. Yeah, interesting. No. Yeah. Our judges were obviously very impressed, not only with, I mean, the turnaround story of the organization, the leadership that took. I mean, that is an amazing story in itself. But it's where the organization has also gone and the depth and breadth of the services that you're offering. And I was wanted to delve into, obviously, there's that primary mission of caring for animals. They're voiceless. They're defenseless for the most part. You know that you know they need humans to stand up for them when um, someone is abusing them or neglecting them or whatever's happened that, that that they need assistance. But you've also made sure that you're reaching out to those in the community that want to care for animals but have found themselves in some dire straits that they may be in a situation where they temporarily can't. Can you talk about? the services that you have offered because we going, went through the pandemic and and um, people losing their jobs and so forth. What was that impact you were seeing at the Humane Society and what were some of the ways that you rose up and you and your staff rose up to meet the human needs to help support the animals that they had? Yeah. Um, so your recent edition in New Hampshire Business Magazine about the homeless situation that's what we're seeing the most of right now, Matt. We're seeing people who um, can't afford their rent anymore getting evicted. If or if there's a turnaround with the ownership of a property and the new landlord doesn't want animals in the house, and so we're really dealing with a lot of housing realities right now, um, shortage of housing, all of that. And so we have the Animal Safety Net Program, and it, we I started that through a grant mm-hmm. um, about five years ago. And we will care for their animal at no cost um, if they're fleeing domestic violence, if they're facing a housing crisis, if they are going into drug addiction treatment and need someone to care for their animal until they come out. Sometimes the animal is all they have left in their lives, right? Um, And we've even done it for people who have uh, lengthy hospital stays, especially through the pandemic. And so we bring them in, and um, we got another grant to transform our garage into beautiful kennels, 
a little living room that has a dog bed, a couch, a TV. Aww. So if somebody is, you know, fleeing domestic violence and they want to come visit their animal until they can get secure housing again, they can come spend time with their animal in the little living room. We have some soft music in there. Oh my and so it's a beautiful new spot. We mm. were lucky enough to get funding from Greater Good Charities and, and Red Rover combined um, their efforts and converted our whole garage into that animal safety net space. Because people often forget that. I mean, the bond that we have with our animals, if that is the one bond you have and you're protecting that animal, that animal and your love for them may be the barrier you have to getting help for yourself, whether that's going into rehab for substance abuse or fleeing domestic violence. They may actually anchor that person because they don't want that animal left unprotected. Mm. And so can you delve a little bit more about how have you worked with other organizations to reach out for people to realize that these services are out there and how those services work for the human too? Yeah. So again, coming from the United Way, especially I had all those great connections with the agencies that we funded. Um, so we, I reached out proactively to um, 100 Nights Shelter in Keene, Southwest Community Services, who also has um, a homeless shelter. Um, I also reached out to the Doorway Project, which mm-hmm. is helping people with addiction. Um, I reached out to, also there's a little different around the animal safety net, but when I saw that our local community kitchen was going to start a mobile food pantry program, mm-hmm. I was like, food insecurity is real for all family members, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. So even if they have to make a decision about food, feeding their children, feeding the dog, how, how do I make these decisions? Yeah. Then we, or the senior citizen who has to make a decision mm-hmm. between their medication or feeding their dogs. So we have partnered with them as well. But um, that was the first thing I did, Matt, is call my partners and say, we have this program and please refer. And it's been working really well. Ideally, we do like to work through one of the structured programs first. Mm-hmm. My, um, we have had people just show up in dire straits and we always help them. Um, my staff currently are like, Kathy, we need a social worker. <laughs> right. That's literally yeah. like our next well, innovative move yeah. is a social worker to help navigate all of these paths that, as my staff would say, you created. <laughs> Remember, we wanted to work with animals. <laughs> yeah, right. right. But they're but so... But they, they get it. They get it. Yeah, but and, and as Matt said, too, and, and uh, earlier, is that they're so interconnected and they're so close to us and they're interconnected in our lives that when you know, an animal comes to you and a human comes to you, there's a lot going on there sometimes. And I think that's, you know, being innovative, that's a pretty innovative move and, and actually is, is perhaps a bridge or another doorway to getting that individual the help they need. So you're helping the animal and the human. And that's pretty remarkable, Kathy. Yeah. And I, I didn't know that we would be the first point of entry, like you said, Matt, like if somebody knows they have to flee or they know, and the stacks, the staggering stats related mm. to the people that won't leave. Right. Right. Those situations because of the animal, or the animal's used as a power play mm-hmm. for the person who's being abusive. And so we, um, and you know, even starting to work with our local um, DCYF, I, I was in a, a recent room with them, and my humane agent wants to go in and speak with them about when you go into a home for a child, mm. can you lay eyes on the whole family? lay eyes on the animals too, because the link of domestic violence 
is real. And so we're starting to now build a brand new relationship with DCYF to perhaps do a big training for um, everything from law enforcement to animal control officers to DCYF um, and all the child welfare organizations to work stronger. When you actually get into a home and have the opportunity to see what's going on, that the opportunity to lay your eyes on the whole family is going to be really important. So we're excited. Um, we're going to set up a meeting soon to go to their all-staff training. Wow. Your, um, your, your skill set and what you've done for this organization is, um, is sort of, a, I would say, a unique model just because of, as you have said, is who you knew, you know, who are you connected to already, and then realizing that this is a much more complex issue than just an, one animal, right? It is the human, it's the animal, it's all of this stuff. Um, do you feel like that is a model that you could, that other uh, humane societies and organizations could also adopt so that they're having a larger impact in the community? You know, that's a good question, Nathan. I know that a lot of them are doing similar mm -hmm. things. Um, I don't know, you know, the latest one as far as connecting with DCYF and the, the link between child abuse and all domestic violence. Yeah. That might be fairly new. I do know that some are offering the low-cost spay-neuter clinics mm -hmm. and some are also doing um, the wellness clinics, low-cost wellness clinics. But um a lot of them do take in animals with people who are navigating crisis. Mm -hmm. So whether they call it the Animal Safety Net Program or they have their own term for right. it, the, the all of us understand the the bond, as you said, and the mm -hmm. importance of that bond and the important and the overall health of the people and the animal to be together. Um, so you know, at the New Hampshire Fed level, mm -hmm. we're all meeting quarterly um, to have. Brain, like sort of best practice conversations around the table. Nice. So I do find that a lot of other humane societies, as we talk about it, gets it, get excited and learn yeah. from each other. Oh, I imagine so. Yeah. Nice. Yep. Excellent. And so, you know, the we just obviously came through a big pet boom during the pandemic. People were home. People like me went, well, I'm home now. <laughs> that's one of the excuses that's, that's gone. Um, can you talk about what that was like for you and your staff, having to vet and meet the the demand while caring for animals, making sure adoptions were still happening at a time where demand was exploding. And then what has it meant now? You know, as people return to work, are you seeing animals coming back? Are, are people keeping up with that promise they're supposed to have of being for that forever home? Um, what has, what was the pandemic like and, and what has been the endemic been like for your organization? Yeah. So, and we certainly, we got to the point like many organizations where we had to furlough a number of our staff. So we had what we called our essential workers and a lot of people didn't think about the humane societies really having that. But as I mentioned, you know, we are like sort of like a hospital setting for animals, right? We always have to be caring mm -hmm. around the clock for these animals. We can't just all work from home. And so, you know, staff did stay on for that. And we immediately went to adoption by appointment. So people would set up an appointment, come one by one. The one thing we found about that practice, well, two things we found about that practice, not being open to the public and doing it by appointments was the amount of time we had to really give that one-on-one -on -one attention to make sure we had the right match. When you're open to the public, you're, you've got people and it's a lot more chaotic. So we had 
much more success keeping animals in homes and not mm. returned, right? Successful adoptions. Um, and we we found too that the animal the animals were a little less stressed, right? So you have people, sometimes people just come to the Humane Society like I did with my son, guilty. Going in, let's go visit, let's go play with animals. Yeah. But we are strangers. Mm -hmm. It's still a little bit stressful. Um, so the animals were a lot less stressed. So that was sort of what was happening during. But we were booming. We couldn't transport animals in fast enough. And we weren't at that time seeing any surrenders because people were staying home and they weren't dealing with a dog that had separation anxiety. Right. I'm be able to be here now. There was a lot of predictions about then when people went back to work that separation anxiety would become real. We didn't hear that. It, it really was sort of the end of the pandemic also tipped us into a huge inflation, right? Right. And a lot of other interest rates, housing crisis. Like so, so everything we're still seeing right now is around surrenders of people struggling with their animals at home is related to housing issues. So it really wasn't, oh, my God, I'm back at work and my dog's having separation anxiety. But we did, you know, certainly we have our training classes. So when somebody calls and talks to us about an issue, we're able to quickly direct them into an area to help them navigate that problem. Now, it was very obvious from the application, too, and in talking to folks that um, your care for people and animals um, it, it, it has a wide breadth in the community, but is also very centered around your staff as well. And I think a lot of people, when they think about humane societies and people who work with animals, it's like, oh, they work with cute animals day in, day out. How great. But the fact is your staff gets exposed to some very heartbreaking situations. So how do you go about supporting them to make sure that they aren't getting burnt out with their work uh, that is so important to the community? Yeah, so compassion fatigue is very, very big. So everything from, you know, a cruelty situation to having to make a difficult decision around a medical issue with an animal that's suffering that, you know, eventually we care for it while you build a relationship with these animals. And then the, the outcome isn't always what you hoped for. Um, and so that, that's very real. And we have we have an employee assistance program mm -hmm. where they around the clock can get ongoing care through that program. Um, but very specifically, uh, in about a month, we're going to be bringing somebody in to do compassion fatigue training, you know, sort of um, not training, but just sort of a program on mm -hmm. compassion fatigue and self care. We had, um, we had over the end of towards the, about two months ago we had somebody coming in doing some reiki type stuff for staff nice i went in i got a um big massage chair that's now in the office area and oh people can come. it's one of those you see you, <laughs> you see in the mall um and so, certainly food is always something that they they thrive for but we have a ton of you know in the animal welfare world there's so many resources for whether it's readings or seminars um, conferences that always every single conference that is happens across the United States has a has a component of self care, um, so we we are always supporting that in that way. Um, do you you have volunteers with the organization as well? Do you oh do you need more? 
<laughs> Isn't that a loaded question? Right, right. Yeah, so we ha- we're we very lucky. Again, people love animals. Um, we always need more, and very specifically on our website, we always try to keep that updated, what the needs are. Um, nice. So it is there. We have everything from laundry to dishes to cleaning cat condos, dog rooms, walking dogs. Um, is a lot to be done in that 20,000 square foot facility. Yeah. 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 Well, I'm glad you led right to that and let folks, because I was going to say, how do folks find yeah. out if they can get involved? So it's on your website, of course, and we'll put that uh, here in the podcast description for everybody so that they can check you out even more and, and learn um, how they can help and have an impact too. So yeah. awesome. And one last question. I mean, obviously <laughs> we have honored you for... Um, amazing accomplishments of this organization and and in your leadership. So it always seems to, you know, be obnoxious to ask this next question, but I know from years of interviewing innovative leaders that you never rest on your laurels. So what's next for the Nana Humane Society? Yeah. So I did mention our connection with um, working more collaboratively with law enforcement, DCYF, and really, um, making sure we have our eyes on the whole family. Um, I'm partnering recently with the Red Rover Readers Program, which is teaching um, librarians, teachers, parents, anybody working with children between the ages of 8 and 11 um, with these very specific curriculum-based children's books that teaches them about social and emotional um, well-being. And lack of bullying and it's all centered around the animals and so when children read these and they have discussions within the classroom they may start they could talk very comfortably about what might be happening with an animal and how the animal might be feeling when this happens to the animal and then they can then start to learn and develop about having their own voice and talking about how that's making them feel as well and um it there's a component with the link that I talked about earlier as mm-hmm. far as what might be going on in the home. If mm. the animal's being mistreated, what might be happening with the child? Right. And so this this pr- curriculum-based program is uh, we're lucky enough to have the founder, CEO, who, who now lives in Peterborough, New Hampshire, um, moved here from California. So I'm building wow. a really strong relationship awesome. with Nicole and... Um, we're start. We, this is a, we're about to do our second training for this program to then get it launched out into s- classrooms. Um, we're doing a second training uh, like March nineteenth. Yeah, beautiful. There's no doubt as to why our judges selected you as our <laughs> nonprofit leader of the year, our inaugural one. Thank you so much. Thank you both for everything that you've done. Yes. Yeah, I'm I'm honored to be here and certainly to be uh, in this line of work. Awesome. Thank you for everything you do, for the approach that you take, for the partnerships that you make, and everything you're doing for the Monadnock region uh, and beyond, honestly. So, uh, of course, Kathy Collinsworth is executive director of Monadnock Humane Society and our inaugural nonprofit leader of the year. Uh, You can celebrate Kathy and a number of other amazing business leaders on May 25th at our celebratory luncheon in downtown Manchester at the Doubletree. You can find out more about that event at businessnhmagazine.com slash events. Kathy Collinsworth, Inaugural Nonprofit Leader of the Year. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you both. Thank you for joining us today. If you enjoyed the stories and information you heard on today's podcast, find more by subscribing to Business NH Magazine or visiting businessnhmagazine.com. 
I'm Matt Nari. And I'm Nathan Carroll. BizCast NH is a production of Granite Media Group.